Okay, today we look at the, the virgin birth, and um, actually as the opening paragraph in your notes speaks to this effect, but uh, the, the more accurate description would not be the virgin birth, the, the more accurate description would be the virgin conception, because the birth itself was, uh, was an ordinary birth in, in biological ways, but the conception is what was extraordinary. Uh, Sam Storm says it would be more proper for us to speak of the virgin conception of Jesus than his virgin birth. His birth, as far as we can tell, was like any other birth. So, too, was his embryonic development in the womb of Mary. What sets Jesus apart is the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. And, of course, Luke chapter 1, there are two specific sections in the Gospels that deal with the virgin birth, Matthew 1 and Luke 1, and we'll also be looking at Luke chapter 3 uh, today. But in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 35, the angel uh, speaking to Mary says, uh, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. That's verse 30. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now, that's, that's referring directly back to Isaiah 7, 14. And he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked a very appropriate question. She said to the angel, how can this be? since I am a virgin. And the answer to that is in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so it's the virgin conception. And when we see the word virgin in the New Testament, the Greek word is, is parthenos, and uh, that's actually a very significant term. I'll, I'll explain why that's important when we get to how we look at Isaiah 7.14, because there are some that, uh, that wrestle with this. I remember back in the 70s, actually the, the Revised Standard Version came out in 1952, and... Um, it had an editorial board that included uh, some Jewish scholars, and there was much controversy about the way that the Revised Standard Version renders uh, Isaiah 7:14, and it, it specifically says a young woman, and that's uh, that's in a very unfortunate translation. But I'll explain why that's that's not a very good translation. But it's uh, it, it actually is not a very wise, not a very appropriate translation. But it's, it's significant that when we look at the conception of our Lord Jesus, that there was no human intervention whatsoever, and that's the nature of salvation. It's entirely a work of God. It's a miraculous work of God. And so we have, if you will, a, an intimation in the virgin birth that salvation in, in its entirety is monergistic, that it is a work of God. There was no human involvement on Adam's part, other, or, or, or pardon me, on Joseph's part, other than the fact that he took uh, the Lord Jesus as his son, his adopted son, raised him very well, of course, uh, but he would, had nothing to do with the conception of, of, uh, of the Lord. 
for our Catholic friends, and I realize I'm addressing Protestants here, but, but we, we live in a very Catholic city. We, we, li- we have a number of friends and co-workers and colleagues and so on that are Catholics, and, and so I, I, I felt obliged to at least include some information about what the virgin birth means and what it does not mean. I found it very significant to note that there's three observations. One of them is that the virgin birth does not require us to believe in the immaculate conception of Mary. By the way, that, that doctrine came about in the 1800s, and it, it, it makes you wonder why it took 1800 years for them to figure this out or, or to come up with this doctrine. But this is a relatively new doctrine, and for those who grew up in Catholic upbringings, this is, this is what you were taught, uh, that Mary was, uh, was uh, always uh, without sin. Uh, she was conceived without sin. Uh, and of course, that is completely inaccurate. Mary saw her need for a savior like any other person. She was a very godly woman and she saw her need for a savior and, and she needed a savior. She happened to be carrying the savior in her own womb. But the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is a very, very false teaching. Secondly, the virgin birth does not require us to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and that's a doctrine that came about in the 1500s. There's no question that, that, that uh, Jesus had, uh, had siblings. Uh, sometimes the Catholic Church will characterize them as cousins, but there's no reason to describe them as cousins. And, and actually, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 25, the Scripture says that, uh, that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And I think the natural implication of that would be that afterwards they had normal relations as any husband and wife would. In Luke 2, verse 7, she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, not her only son, but, but to her firstborn. And then Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters, that's the way they're, they're often described, are, are referenced in the, in the Gospels. And the Catholic Church would claim that these are cousins, but that's, there's no basis for that whatsoever. On page two, a third implication, and it's a very significant implication, is that the virgin birth does not elevate Mary to a particular place of worship or veneration. No one is worthy of worship or veneration other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so that would have been something that is also a fairly recent vintage. Um, but uh, Pope Leo in 1953, maybe you didn't know it was that recent, but uh, no man goes to the Father but by the Son, and no one goes to Christ except through his mother. You will not find that in the Scriptures. You will clearly not find that in the Scriptures. That is an invention, and that is, it is a, it, it, candidly, it's a demonic uh, invention. Uh, we don't need any mediator or mediatrix other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is God and man and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, our Savior himself. Why does it matter uh, that we look at this? And there are a number of reasons. We'll touch on these, spend some time, more time on, on some of these points than others. But the most obvious reason is that the Scripture clearly speaks of the virgin birth. There's no question about it. This has been the confession of the church for, uh, for millennia. Uh, when we say the Apostles' Creed, we, we are affirming the virgin birth, and it's in any doctrinal confession that, that the Lord Jesus was conceived in a, in a virgin's womb. But the Scriptures speak very clearly about, in both Matthew 1 and Luke 1, both of these sections uh, deal very specifically 
uh, with the fact that uh, the Lord Jesus uh, was born uh, in a virgin conception. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, and while you're turning there, just an interesting intimation. When you look back at Genesis 3.15, you have what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. This is the the statement of the Lord to Satan that there would be enmity between uh, the, him and, and, the, and the woman. There would be a conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Not the seed of the man, but the seed of the woman. And it's interesting because in, in Genesis 5, you've got a genealogy and, and it starts with the, the, the man and, and, it, and it proceeds along the man. But it's, it's interesting that when you see the promise of the Messiah, it's the seed of the woman. And so when you see in Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy, and this is, this is Joseph's genealogy here that you're looking at, and that's very significant when we look at this a little bit later. But look at verse 16, and it's tracing the, the genealogy of Joseph. Jacob was the father, well, it, it's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, but it, it traces that genealogy to be more accurate through Joseph. So let me, let me correct that statement. It's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, but it traces that genealogy through Joseph. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, or of whom, as some translations would have it, and that expression is in a feminine form, by whom, or of whom, Jesus was born. It does not say that... Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says that he, or that he was the, the literal um, father. It says that he was the husband of Mary. And there's a, a big difference between saying that he's the husband of Mary and he's the, uh, the father of the Lord Jesus. He was the husband of Mary, and the Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And so that's, it's a very interesting uh, sequence there. It's, it's a break in the structure. If you look at all of these Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah, etc. And then you say Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. It doesn't say Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom or of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. And so you've got a, a very clear statement in the scriptures. And, and it's important because this is an attestation directly in the scriptures. You'll find the same reference to the virgin birth in Luke chapter 1. And in, uh, in this constituency today, none of us question the, the authenticity of the, of the scriptures, the, the veracity of the scriptures. Uh, but, but you should just simply know that the most important reason that we affirm this is because the Scripture affirms it. And there's unequivocal in its statement that Jesus was conceived in, in the, the womb of a virgin. The second reason on page 3 is it ties back directly with the Old Testament. And the most pivotal passage, of course, is Isaiah 7.14. And we'll be looking at Isaiah 7.14 in greater detail but uh, if you look at Matthew 1, 22, and 23, you'll see that all of this, Matthew 1, 22, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then you have a quotation, a, a direct quotation from Isaiah 7, 14. The, woman shall, the, the, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And so it, it refers both to Isaiah 9, but directly to Isaiah 7, 14. So the Old Testament passage that is pivotal for us when we look at the virgin birth is Isaiah 7, 14. 
And then in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, if you'll flip over there, just briefly. We referenced this a little bit earlier, but behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great called the Son of the Most uh, High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that is being referred to here. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And of course, Mary makes a very clear question. How, she, she says herself, I am a virgin. And, and the word that is used there in the Greek is, is a virgin. And the word that is used in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7 refers to a virgin. There's no, no doubt about that whatsoever. And then the explanation in verse 35 about how that conception will literally take place. Well, the theological significance is, is also very profound. So you've got the direct attestation of Scripture in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. You've got the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14 that's referenced here in the, in the gospel narratives as well. And then you've got this issue of the, of the second Adam. You've got the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam, the historic Adam, and, and it was uh, uh, Eve's husband, um, Romans 5, 12. Why don't you flip over to Romans 5 because uh, you need to understand these two heads uh, in, our, in our lives, in our spiritual lives. Romans 5.12, just as through one man, and that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam is our federal head. We sinned in Adam. We, we descended from Adam by ordinary generation, and so we sinned in him and fell with him and are culpable along with him because of his transgression against the law of God. Someone might say, I wasn't in the garden. I didn't do that. You're right. You weren't physically in the garden, but you sinned in Adam. He's your federal head. You, you descended from him, and his culpability is your culpability. But we need a second Adam. We need, we need another Adam to, to deliver us from this guilt. And the scripture goes on to say, For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Verse 14 in Romans 5, Nevertheless, death reigned. From Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, that's, that's speaking of the, the, our sin in Adam, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The Lord Jesus is our second Adam. The Lord Jesus is our head. He's the one who obeyed the law perfectly in our stead. He's the one who satisfied the wrath of the Father in our stead as the substitute, as the suffering servant. And so we have two heads. We have the first Adam and the second Adam, and the Lord Jesus is the second Adam. It's important for us to know that Adam, that the Lord Jesus did not descend through ordinary generation. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin, and it was an extraordinary, miraculous undertaking by God himself, an entirely monergistic work, a work of God alone. And so Jesus was not conceived in an ordinary way. He was conceived in an entirely miraculous way. And by virtue of the fact that he was conceived in an entirely miraculous way, 
He's not tainted by the the sin of an ordinary generation from Adam, as the rest of us are. And so you can see the, the, the description here, but it's actually continued in Romans 5 and verse 19. As through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's Adam. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the Lord Jesus, our federal head, the many will be made righteous. So we need an entirely sinless head to deliver us from our guilt. And that's exactly who Jesus is, is our sinless head. He was not tainted, was not touched by the, the, the sin that was transmitted through ordinary generation of those who descended from Adam, as, as, as all of us have been. On page four, this is a bit philosophical, but Andreas Kostenberger deals with some of the some of the objections, so to speak, and I won't be dealing very long with some of these, but, but there are three issues that are often raised about the virgin birth. And the second, the first one is really the voice of human reason. It's the voice of the unbeliever. It's a philosophical question. How could this possibly have happened? We won't be spending much time on that. Um, the second question is what difference does it make theologically? And then there is a third question that he references. But this, is it possible? And of course, the only reason that someone would ask that question is if they are a, uh, a, a rationalist, if they are looking at the world as strictly an empirical observation and, and looking at it as if there is nothing supernatural, it's entirely a materialistic universe. This is the voice of the unbeliever. They're saying, how could that possibly have happened? So we're, we won't be spending any significant time on this objection. But we know that the same God who spoke the entire world into existence with the word, let there be, he spoke all of that there is into existence with those words, let there be, simply by his own decree, ex nihilo, out of nothing, a fiat creation by declaration. That same God is, is capable and, is, and does all sorts of miraculous things. So is it necessary, this goes to the theological reason, and on page 5, I'm just going to be looking at, there are five theological reasons that John Frame gives an answer to this question. I'm only going to be looking at four and five because the the first three are are important but not worthy of, of spending a lot of time on. The sinlessness of Christ. If, if, if Christ were born of two human parents, it would be difficult to conceive how he could have been exempted from the guilt of Adam's sin and become the new head of the human race. We spoke of that earlier when we read from Romans 5. So there is this theological reason that is very important. When we say, why does the virgin birth matter? It's because it was integral to the Lord Jesus being our head, our sinless head. Not descended from, from Adam in an ordinary way, not descended from any human being in an ordinary way, but, but conceived in a, an entirely miraculous way. And then this nature of grace, and, and this was intimated earlier in, in the opening paragraph or two of our handout. It's, it's the nature of God in saving people that he does it all himself. And that's exactly how the Lord Jesus came in to take on human flesh. We know he always pre-existed. We know he's eternal. We know he's the son of God. But he took on flesh. John 1, the prologue of, of the Gospel of John, talks about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus in, in wonderful expressions. But the nature of, of grace is that God does it all. There is no human cooperation. And, and the, the, did Mary um, serve as a, 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 a faithful, loving 
um, birth mother for the Lord Jesus, of course, but, but there was nothing from a human standpoint that was involved in the conception. It was entirely a work of God. And so it's what we would expect of, of this. Now, page six. You're going to have to kind of fasten your seatbelts on this because this is a, a this discussion requires some some sort of concentration as we go through this. This I think is a very important point, and it deals with the Lord Jesus being the rightful heir to the throne of David. Uh, and so I, I'm going to skip down to the third paragraph in this. But to to rightly claim the throne and the scepter of Israel. Jesus had to, number one, <clears throat> trace his descent from certain individuals. He had to be qualified to, to, to descend from certain people, David, to be specific. And just as importantly, he had to be able to deny his descent from others, Kaniah. So he had to be a descendant of some and not a descendant of others to, in order to rightly fulfill this. Only a descendant of David could occupy the throne of Israel. And it was, this was not something that, that we would have arrived at through human supposition. This, was, this comes directly from the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. So flip over there so that you'll, I want you to see this with your own eyes. This is the most wonderful section about the, the promise of the, the throne of, of David. But 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 16. This is God's covenant with David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This passage speaks of the the throne of David ultimately being occupied by Messiah because it, it is very clear that the throne will be established forever, but it's descended through the line of David, a, a direct descendant of David. So this is the, the, the covenant that God made with David that one of his biological descendants, his seed, would be uh, the ruler of Israel. And he promised a perpetual throne, a throne without end, a throne forever and ever and ever. No human has ever occupied such a throne. It's impossible because this is a, an eternal throne forever. And a perpetual throne, a, a dynasty or a house, and a kingdom. And so this required that this, this person who ultimately will occupy the throne of David be a direct descendant of David. And part of this covenant uh, pertains to David's son. David had more than one son. David had several sons. And, but, but Solomon was the one through whom the, the kingly line descended. This goes back to the, what we call the United Monarchy. In the United Monarchy, you had three kings. You had Saul, you had David, and you had Solomon. And then you have the divided monarchy, and you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam, etc. One over Jerusalem, one over Judah, one over Israel, one over the southern kingdom, one over the northern kingdom. 
But the, the, David had several sons, uh, but Solomon was the one through whom the, the kingly line descended. And, and, and the Lord uh, did not, he promised not to reject Solomon, but he would establish his throne. But he did not promise perpetuity uh, for all of Solomon's descendants. And so what does that mean? We'll go over to page 7. How could Solomon, this is a, an important question, how could Solomon have a perpetual kingdom and a throne without having descendants who would rule it? And the, the, the way that that happens, it's determined, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was a curse that God placed upon Solomon's descendant, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Kaniah. Those are the same people. This was uh, Josiah's son. Kaniah was the next to the last king of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. He was an evil, evil king. Many of them were. But grandson of the godly Josiah, he was a terribly evil king. But he was the one through whom the kingly line descended through Solomon. So you had David, Solomon, then you had a whole litany of kings, and ultimately you came to Kaniah, and he was in this, this line of kings. He was, again, a, a very evil, uh, just a, a, a very, very evil king. And there was a curse that God pronounced against him in Jeremiah chapter 22. So flip over to Jeremiah 22. Where I'm leading in all of this is the extraordinary way in which the virgin birth provides for Jesus to be the Davidic king without in any form or fashion violating this curse. He's eminently qualified. Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. I will give you over to the hand of those who were seeking you. This is right before the captivity occurred with, with, this, with Judah. And to the hand of those whom you dread, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the, king, the hand of the Chaldeans, I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But go on, follow, jump down to verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. No man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Okay, now, so here is, is this one, Kaniah, who is a descendant of Solomon, and the Lord God himself has said, that's the end of the line for you. There, there will be no people who occupy the throne in, in your line. And so you have one in the, in the line of, of uh, Solomon. And so think about what the implication about that would be. So you've got the promise to David that he would have a descendant, a literal flesh descendant, who would occupy the throne forever and ever. And then you have this kingly line, David, Solomon, and then a number of kings, ultimately through Kaniah in the southern kingdom. And the Lord God says, that none of your descendants will be sitting on the throne of, uh, of David. So what does that mean about the Davidic covenant? We know that God's purposes never fail. But, but from a human standpoint, would that not raise a question about how will God fulfill the Davidic covenant? How will one sit on the throne of David forever if this line that came through Kaniah is, is cursed? And it is cursed. Well, the question is, it goes to this, and now I'm down to these second to the last paragraph on this page seven. Uh, 
that Joseph was a direct descendant of Solomon through Caniah. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you've got the genealogy that culminates in Jesus, and it is, the, it is a genealogy that traces the descent through Joseph, through Joseph. And, and you'll see that uh, in the line of uh, Joseph is Coniah, and he was under the curse. So Matthew 1.16 says that Jesus was born only to Mary, and you have this of whom he was born. Okay, so in your... And it disallows Joseph as a biological parent. So you've got this genealogy that traces the, the line of Jesus all the way through Joseph. And yet Solomon is in that line. And Kaniah is in that line. Okay, so what does that mean? Could, could, could Joseph have been the one that gave Jesus his position, his throne? No, because that would have violated the, the condemnation in Jeremiah 22 against the line of Kaniah. So wherein lies the title? for Jesus to be the one who reigns. And, and the answer to that is over in the Gospel of Luke. If you look at Luke's uh, genealogy, and that's in Luke chapter 3, there are some who see this differently, but I would, as I've studied this, as I've been taught, Luke is the genealogy that traces through to Mary. Uh, but you've had this genealogy of Jesus that starts in verse 23. And it's interesting that Coniah is not in here. Uh, if you look at verse 31, you see the son of David. But who's the son of David that is referenced here? It is not Solomon. Remember we said that, that, that David had more than one son. Solomon was the one through whom the kingly line descended. But he had other sons. And the son that through whom this genealogy is traced is not Solomon. It is Nathan. Kaniah was a descendant through Solomon. Nathan was not the line through which Kaniah descended. Do you, do you see the difference? So you've got this line that goes all the way to David. David had several sons. One son, Solomon, was the one that ultimately descended into Kaniah. But Kaniah, according to Jeremiah 22, was the end of the line. And no one of his descendants would ever sit on the throne. So then another son, Nathan, of the son of David, remember it has to be a lineal descendant of David to occupy the throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Nathan is one of David's sons, and Nathan is the one through whom this line descends. So you have the, the, the biological, who's the biological mother of Jesus? Mary. And what does this genealogy trace? This traces the genealogy of Mary. And, and so you would have had the, the Solomonic line, at least the, the legal title, through Joseph, but you would have had the biological descent through Mary. If Jesus had been born of Joseph, it would have violated the Kaniah curse. But Jesus was not born of Joseph. Jesus was conceived supernaturally by the, in the womb of the, of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and Mary was the biological mother of the Lord Jesus himself. And so the, the, the throne is, will be fulfilled, will be occupied entirely in, in fulfillment of Scripture. So if you look at, at the bottom of page 18, second to the last uh, paragraph, the curse on Kaniah imposed an apparently impossible contradiction upon God. He had promised David that his descendant would occupy the throne, 2 Samuel 7. 
He had further promised that the right to the throne and kingdom would be transmitted through Solomon's house. How could God keep the promise in view of his curse on Caniah, Jeremiah 22? The answer is the virgin birth. Only the virgin birth allows Jesus to inherit from Joseph the legal title to, to rule and from Mary the biological qualification to occupy the throne of David. Top of page 9. If Jesus, if Jesus were not legally the son of Joseph, he would have no claim of the throne. If Jesus were the biological son of Joseph, he would be disqualified. If Jesus were not the true son of David through Mary, he would lack the royal descent. The virgin birth is essential to Jesus' right to govern. Without the virgin birth, Jesus could not be the Messiah who will bring in the promised kingdom. So you've got this fulfillment. But we're not imposing these rules. God himself determined how the line would descend. And so when you look at these genealogies, sometimes if you're like me, you look at these genealogies and you kind of scratch your head and you say, I'm not sure why all the detail. Luke was impeccable. The Dr. Luke was impeccable. What a wonderful historian. And all the scripture is impeccable. But Luke was very careful to record for us a genealogy that would, would give us the line of, of the Lord Jesus through uh, Nathan and, and not through Solomon. And that's important because that's his, his, he was descended biologically, not through Solomon. He was, he was descended biologically through Solomon's sibling, through Nathan. Sometimes people will struggle over Isaiah 7.14, just in, in sort of closing some of these observations. And I mentioned earlier that the Revised Standard Version in 1952 rendered Isaiah 7.14 by, by speaking of a... Uh, a, a young woman. Uh, flip over to Isaiah 7.14. You remember when our pastor was working his way through Isaiah that, that, um, that Ahaz was offered an opportunity for a sign. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz again, saying, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And and Ahaz, of course, resisted that, rejected. I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. And uh, and so the the answer that is given is an answer was given not just to Ahaz. uh, The uh, 14, the the you is plural. Uh, The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The, the Hebrew word that is used there is Alma. There is another Hebrew word, Betulah, that is also often used to talk about a young woman or a virgin. Only Alma refers to a virgin without further qualification. When you, when you see Betula used, it will be, and it occurs, for instance, in Genesis 24 and other passages, this is a young woman, a virgin, who had not had marital relations. There's a qualification that is attached to it. But the word that is used, Alma, is the word that is used for a virgin without further qualification. There would have been nothing extraordinary whatsoever as a sign to simply say that a young woman will bear, will bear a child. I mean, what would be extraordinary about that? There would be nothing miraculous about that. There would be nothing supernatural about a young woman bearing a, a, a child. Someone would, the reader would have said, so what? I, I don't understand the implications. It happens every day. Young women bear children all the time. What was supernatural was the fact they understood very clearly that the word that was used referred literally to a virgin. And that's an, that's an attention getter. 
What's interesting is that the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, we call it the Septuagint, and it was rendered by, by very, very scholarly scribes. And the, the word that is used to render the, the word in Isaiah 7:14 is exactly the same Greek word that is used in the New Testament for a virgin. There was no question whatsoever how it was to be understood. And it literally means a virgin. It doesn't mean a young woman of marriageable age. It means a young woman of marriageable age who has not had relations with a man. It, it literally means a virgin. So there's no reason to translate um, this, this word Alma in, in Isaiah 7.14 is anything other than what you have in the New American Standard and other good translations because that's how it was understood. There's no question about it. It's supernatural in, in every conceivable way. Um, that's on page 10 uh, of your notes. Now, what you'll notice on page 11 is there is a, a long article, and this is a freebie for you. I, I won't be covering it. But J. Gresham Machen wrote the, the most robust defense of the virgin birth, I think, that has probably ever been written. I, I downloaded a copy of it, and it is a long one, and it is really, really detailed. This particular article uh, is one that traces by James Montgomery Boyce, and he goes through uh, a lot of, of J. Gresham Machen's uh, work, and, and you, can, you can read this, but page 13 in the middle of the page, Machen did his work. Uh, it, he, he essentially was writing a defense of the of the, um, the, the virgin birth, and he at, at Harvard University, one of the schools uh, of, the, of the theology school there. Uh, he didn't. The head of the school didn't agree with Machen, but he said no one has ever answered Machen's arguments. It, it was just it was as solid as could possibly be. So if you want to read it, and again, this is, is I, I enjoyed it. I hope you do as well. It, it, we're not, we don't have the time to work our way through it, but it's good uh, reading for the weekend. But let's go over to page 17. And, and this, just to sum it up, this is from the Heidelberg Catechism on the Virgin Birth. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. This is an explication of the Apostles' Creed in the Heidelberg Catechism. The God's eternal Son, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon himself the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, likened to his brethren in all things, sin accepted. Now that's a very concise but very robust answer to what the meaning of the virgin birth is. He took on human flesh in the, in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, that he might be the true seed of David, Second Samuel 7, likened to his brethren in all things, sin accepted. He is our federal head. What profit do you receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator. He's the only mediator, but he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. We were conceived in sin. Jesus was not conceived in that way. And if you want to know how those conclusions were reached, all of the supporting texts are referred for you on page 18. And, and these, good, these good Reformed catechisms and confessions, uh, they're, they're 
always rooted in a litany of passages of Scripture. They're never just human supposition. They're always carefully uh, supported by, by, by passages of Scripture, and I've reproduced all of them here for you so you can look through it and benefit your soul by reading it. But the significance of the virgin birth, first of all, the Bible says so. That's the end of the question. Theologically, Jesus was not descended by ordinary generation from Adam. He was conceived supernaturally in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, he is our sinless mediator. He is uh, the second Adam. He is the one who accomplished redemption for us. And then if you look at this, this, this discussion that we had on the, the genealogy of Jesus and how the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in one, literally down to the last detail, uh, through the biological lineage, uh, through Mary, not through Joseph, but through Mary, then I, I, it inspires me, it encourages me just to see the meticulous way in which God engineers human history in such a way that His promises come to pass with no variation at all, with no compromise, no question marks, no equivocation. He does what He says He will do without any problem whatsoever because He's God. Father, we thank You.